Come on into the sitting room. The sitting room. We're saving you a seat. In the sitting room. The sitting room. Here's your host, Kathy Cairo. And welcome into the sitting room. I'm Kathy Cairo. Sunday afternoon, a beautiful, beautiful day today. I hope you have been out and enjoying it. So grateful whatever you're doing, you're taking me along with you because we have a great show ahead of us. A special thanks to American Eagle Mortgage. They are my featured sponsor in the sitting room. In this market, when so many people are out finding homes and actually standing in line to get into them because it is indeed a seller's market uh, in central Ohio, If you find that special home, you have got to have a great, strong pre-approval in place, and you can start with American Eagle Mortgage. Talk to my friend Rachel May, aemc.cc slash Rachel May. Today's show, which is live, will be on podcast tomorrow on my Facebook page, and that's facebook.com slash sitting room radio. You can always download this show or any of past shows uh, in the iTunes library as well, and that's where you can find me. You can always send me a message through the Facebook page or at Kathy at sittingroomradio.com, and that is Kathy with a K. Today's show, I am so excited to jump into this topic because I absolutely love anything that I don't understand, <laughs> which means we get we have show topics for years, folks, let me tell you. Um, but this one in particular has been headline making in the past several weeks, and boy, it has slammed into uh, the church, slammed into evangelical faith, and quite frankly, we are locking and barring the door because nobody quite know what knows what to do with it. Be honest, had you ever heard the term gender dysphoria uh, before uh, several weeks ago when Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, hit the cover of Cosmo? Uh, I had not, and, and, uh, it, and even the little bit that I knew about um, this, uh, uh, this sense of being in the wrong gender, because I had heard bits and pieces of that, I had so many misconceptions conceptions about it. I almost guarantee that uh, if you had have any thoughts about it, some of what you know is either a myth, uh, a misunderstanding, or simply not true. Uh, I don't know um, if any of you watched the interview that Diane Sawyer did with Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner. I'll be honest, still not quite sure what to say about that, but uh, right after his public um uh, pronouncement about his uh, sex change, his um, uh, transition into a woman. The close-ups, <laughs> and Diane Sawyer is a sharp woman. She has interviewed thousands of people, and yet the contortions on her face, her questions, her trying to understand this complex phenomena, it was truly baffling to her. Uh, and so I feel in good company when it is truly baffling to me. Then you add to that the spiritual element. Where is God in the equation? Uh, is this desire of gender transition, is it sin? 
is it willful? Is it a willful sin? Well, my guest in the first hour of the show is, I'm sure he's a busy man in the in the past several weeks because he is, in my opinion, opinion, almost a lone voice out there. He's the author of the first and groundbreaking study on transgender Christians, which I'm certain many in my audience consider an oxymoron. In the second hour, I talked to a woman who went to church with her brother. His name was Charlie. They both got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. And today, Charlie is transitioning to Carly, not only on national TV in that reality show Becoming Us, but privately within the family. How do you respond when your brother is becoming your sister and you both hold convictions of faith? Faith, rather. First, uh, what a goldmine of information my first guest is. He is fast becoming the evangelical voice, expertise, compassion, and understanding on the subject of gender dysphoria. He is a professor of psychology at Regent University in Virginia Beach. He has spent years, well, well before this uh, hit the headlines. He was already counseling men and women and children who struggle with sexual identity confusion. And he is the author of one of the most enlightening books I have ever read. And those of you who listen to the show know that I'm a reader, a prolific reader. And I picked up Dr. Mark Yarhouse's book, Couldn't Put It Down, because I found that it was informing me on a subject that I had huge gaps in my knowledge. It's called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture, a Changing Culture Indeed. It is my honor. Please welcome to the sitting room, Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Hi, Mark. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for having me in the room. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. I suspect in the past several weeks you have been a busy man, is it, with everybody wanting your opinion. Is that the case? I think you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is uh, it is a pleasure to have you for uh, this first hour in my show. And let me start for my audience, Mark, the way I started with this subject, and that is with a lot of misinformation. Um, what do you find is the most uh, um, the, the the biggest wrong thing that people think about tra- uh, transgender issues and what we're dealing with in this uh, situation, like with Bruce becoming Kate? Jenner. Well, I think one of the things that I see in my role as a psychologist is I'll see families come in where they have been told by well-meaning people who are trying to help them as a family that their teenager or their you know emerging adult is um, just being willfully disobedient by um, having this experience of gender incongruence and the dysphoria that can accompany that, and so they they end up kind of thinking. Um, that, that their child chose this when I think they have choices to make, but it, to, to say that someone would choose to experience this kind of, you know, um, incongruence or this kind of uh, difficulty with their gender and then the distress associated with that is a pretty remarkable claim. But I have heard it from from uh, leaders. You say you describe this uh, gender dysphoria and the dis- and, and trying to explain it, trying to get to the root of it. You have said in your book that it is a virtual minefield for any author who wants to step on this terrain. You've willingly and very knowledgeably stepped into a terrain. I would say you've actually been walking that terrain for years uh, and years. Why is it so difficult? What what is it about this particular diagnosis, if you want to call it? that that makes it so difficult to understand and explain? 
Well, there's there's many layers uh, to to what makes it difficult. I mean, one thing is there's there's not really an objective measure you can give someone to make the diagnosis. So you kind of are asking about their history, their experience. You know, if you're working with a child, you're trying to meet with the child and understand how they experience their own gender identity. Um, so there's pieces like that, and then there's you know, we're in a we're in a moment in time right now where what's really controversial is how you intervene with a young person. So if they're a minor, how do you intervene? And this is coming on the heels of all of the debates and cultural discussions about um, gay and lesbian issues. And so this is sometimes on the heels of that. You know, we think of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Well, they're different phenomenon. And so when you lump them together, it can be pretty confusing for people as well. And then people debate, you know, can this resolve? Does it resolve on its own? Can you do anything in ministry or counseling to uh, redirect or change anything or bring about congruence? So there's a lot of just, uh, it just gets, and then all the people who do research in this area, do therapy in this area, can quickly become demonized for the positions that they take. Hmm. Dr. Mark Yarhouse is in the sitting room with me. He has written a book uh, that I, I know it sounds like a textbook, like it's full, you know, uh, fully for those who are perhaps medically in this field or in academia. But I'm telling you, it's very readable and you should read it if you are if you want to be intelligently informed on transgender issues. It's called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transge- Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. Uh, have you watched any of the ABC Family uh, Channel reality show Becoming Us. It's the story of a man, Charlie, who is transitioning into a woman and the effect that's having on his teenage son. Coming up next uh, hour in the sitting room, I talk to Charlie, now Carly's sister. Both are Christians. What is your response if you're a person of faith when your brother wants to become your sister? And I continue my conversation with Dr. Mark Yarhouse right after this break in the sitting room on News Radio 610 WTVN. Welcome back to the sitting room. I'm Kathy Cairo, and we are talking about gender dysphoria. I'm not even going to try to define it. <laughs> That's a job for my guest, and, and uh, he'll admit in his book even uh, he has trouble at time putting that in a few words. Later in the show, Margaret Philbrick is an author and a poet, but even she was left without words when her beloved brother told her he would still be beloved, but was transitioning his sexual identity into her sister. What is the proper Christian response to that announcement? Well, I'll ask her in the next hour. Continuing our discussion on the topic of gender dysphoria, my guest this hour is what I believe to be the nation's preeminent, at least evangelical expert on topics related to gender identity. He is a particularly good about promoting compassion and understanding within the church. He is the chair of the task force on lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender issues for the psychology of religion and spirituality, and he is the author of Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. Please welcome back to the sitting room from his home in Virginia Beach, Virginia, Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Hi, Mark. 
Hi. Let me start with a few myths because there are a lot of them. Uh, the first is, and I know I thought this going in, is I related uh, transgender dysphoria or gender dysphoria to homosexuality. It is not the same, is it? No, it isn't. So when we talk about homosexuality or gay, lesbian, bisexual, you're referencing the person's sexual attractions, emotional, physical sexual attractions to the same sex or to both the same and the opposite sex. With gender dysphoria, you're talking first about just gender identity, which, you know, has to do with a person's um, experience of themselves as male or female, including, you know, how masculine or feminine a person feels. But when that isn't lining up very well with their biological sex so that their psychological experience of their gender doesn't match really well with their biological sex, then they can experience what we call gender dysphoria, which really references the distress that uh, can accompany that uh, lack of alignment you might think of. I think that the the time I saw Diane Sawyer's face contorting (laughs) when she was trying to get Bruce, I think he was still Bruce at that point, Bruce Jenner to say, okay, you're turning into a woman. So does that mean you're a lesbian? And he said, because he said, I am still attracted to women. I just look like a woman. And she said, well, then are you a lesbian? He said, no, I'm still biologically a man. And I would contort my face, too, because that's extremely difficult to understand. But I think the point that he was making is that gender identity and sexuality are not the same thing, are they? I think that's exactly what he was saying, is that they're not the same thing. Um, And in most cases where you think of classic transsexuality, where someone really does cross-gender identify and make some kind of a transition of some sort, um, they usually are attracted to the other sex and want the other sex to be attracted to them as their new gender identity. So I think the question that came up made sense, and I think, um, you know, I don't know where Caitlyn Jenner will be with that down the road. You know, it's it's a very hard thing. I I really can't even speak to that, you know, Caitlyn's Mm. experiences with all this, but... Um, but that's a very uh, distinct thing for everybody to kind of figure out. Uh, most of the people that I meet with, though, are not really focused on who they're attracted to. Their focus is, how do I manage this dysphoria, and what does that look like going forward for my quality of life, my relationship with God, so on and so forth. Um, Mark, let me let me back up to my own life because I want you to tell me what the difference is. I was raised in a home. Uh, well, I had seven children in my family, but the, the the siblings right around me were all boys. So I was raised as the I was always with four brothers. I was the uh, permanent quarterback on the football field. I was always the fifth player playing with boys. I grew up dressing like a boy, short hair, acting like a boy, because that's just, I was very, very much a tomboy. I didn't wear dresses, didn't like ruffles, uh, any of that. Now, eventually I grew out of that and and had my nails done and did all the things that women do. But at that point in my life as a, you know, elementary going into middle school age, I was very, very boyish in the way I acted. What is the difference between that and what you see in your counseling uh, offices, which is a girl who wants to be a boy and and it is a true psychological uh, a disorder? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big difference is the, your experiences are very normal, and many people would say, especially with girls growing up, that there's greater social latitude, cultural latitude for a girl to be tomboyish. In fact, we have, we have language for that. So if a girl has those interests, um, the, the broader culture allows room for that. I don't think we have that with boys growing up. Any sort of deviation outside of a pretty narrow box for gender expression makes parents very concerned. Um, so I, I, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, but in most cases, the vast majority of cases, it's not gender dysphoria. Many boys growing up will, you know, get in their mom's closet and put on, you know, like put their feet in the high heel shoes and walk around and say, Mom, look what I'm doing. And it's, and it's funny. Girls will be tomboyish and so on and so forth. So that's why you actually do an evaluation to make sure that we're really talking about the same thing. This is a very rare phenomenon, and it's, it's, it's a marked lack of congruence where, you know, a girl growing up wouldn't say, I'd like to be like the boys, or I'd like the advantages I see of the boys, or I think the boys get to do more fun stuff. It's not like what they perceive to be advantageous about being a boy. It is this really profound sense that I am a boy. And so that that will look different when you meet with somebody than just being tomboyish. And how early do we see that, Mark? How young are they coming into your office? Well, gender identity develops uh, between ages two and four for a child, their sense of themselves as a, as a boy or girl. Um, and I would say most families do not bring someone in if this seems off in some ways at that young of an age, because they usually think of it as a kind of funny, kind of a cute thing, a phase they'll pass. So they usually come to someone's office closer to six when you're thinking more about preschool or kindergarten or something where the social evaluation will not be the family sort of, you know, where there's great love and unconditional support. It's going to be now a peer group that compares your child to other children, and there's the risk of them being uh, teased. Dr. uh, Mark Yarhouse is on the phone with me. He's the author of Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. Coming up next week in the sitting room, you remember uh, Jim and Tammy Baker, where their son Jay Baker is on the phone with me. What happens when you grow up in the evangelical limelight only to have it turn right back around on you? Jay will be in the sitting room next week. I'm Kathy Cairo. Stick around more with Mark Yarhouse on this fascinating subject next on News Radio 610 WTVN. Come on into the sitting room. The sitting room. We're saving you a seat in the sitting room. The sitting room. Here's your host. Kathy Cairo. Welcome back into the sitting room. Before we jump uh, back into this topic, uh, a, a big, big thank you to American Eagle Mortgage. They are my featured sponsor of the sitting room, have been for months, and I'm so grateful to Rachel May and her team at American Eagle Mortgage. You can find them at, find them at aemc.cc slash Rachel May. My guest next hour in the sitting room is a woman who found her Christian convictions challenged when her brother announced he loved her and loved God 
and was changing genders, becoming her sister. I talked to her in the five o'clock hour. Right now, I return to my conversation with Dr. Mark Yarhouse. He is a psychologist specializing in gender identity issues, but more specifically, he is a Christian. And so he comes at this topic also looking at the spiritual identity of these people. Please welcome him back into the sitting room, Mark Yarhouse. Hi, Mark. Hi, it's great to be here. One of the things I do find that we that this topic has in common with uh, dealing with the homosexual um, issue, at least from an evangelical perspective, is that there is a common understanding that both of these, uh, both uh, being having gender dysphoria as well as homosexuality, that it is a choice, that it is a willful disobedience against God, and that uh, while it may be difficult to do, that people who suffer uh, with uh, gender dysphoria just need to make a decision to correct their behavior or to fix it. Uh, Tell me, expound on that for me. What what is your response to that? Well, I think of the young 16-year-old that I met. I talk about this in my book, but she and her parents came to visit with me, and she had been told that by a couple of pastors that, and her parents had been told this, that this was just willful disobedience on the part of their daughter, and I was the first Christian um, authority, I guess, or, or, you know, who said, look, I don't think you chose to experience this dysphoria or this distress or this lack of alignment between your gender identity and your biological sex. I think you found yourself with this, as I've talked with you about this, and, you know, she looked at me just to make sure I wasn't, you know doing something, you know, another shoe was going to drop. And when I shared this with her mother, I mean, she just burst into tears and had not heard any other option besides her daughter was was in sin. And, uh, you know, we, we needed to unpack, you know, where do we go from here? What are some directions that would be meaningful for her and for her family? But the idea that she somehow chose this to make their family a very complicated, you know, difficult, uh, challenging place for everybody is uh, was really uh, beyond me to, to imagine. Uh, Dr. Mar- uh, Mark Yarhouse on the phone with me, and he's written a book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. Mark, I tell you, you threw a grenade into theology, and one line I read uh, from your book, you said, uh, two hazards we face when we turn to the Bible to inform our discussion about gender dysphoria, and the first hazard is to look to the Bible to provide answers it is not prepared to provide. Wow, just that statement alone, that there is something that you could search 66 books and not find an answer in is going to be controversial in and of itself. But from where do you speak? Where where does that statement come from? Well, I think for, you know, uh, I I mean, I am an evangelical and I do believe in obviously the, the value of Scripture, the Word of God. I think sometimes, though, in efforts to hold it high, sometimes we end up looking for a kind of detail that it's not meant to provide. I don't, I don't think of it as a manual that I can look to for all the steps to treat a number of issues that people deal with, whether they're health concerns or mental health concerns. I think God intends for us to um, also use natural revelation, to, uh, general revelation, to study and use the gifts and tools and resources we have to, to inform our understanding in these areas and to use, obviously, broad principles from Scripture that are to inform our reasoning. But I think if you look at it um, 
one group of theologians writing about this said sometimes people turn to the Bible as a kind of ethical cookbook for just how to to address controversial issues like this, and, and we end up not treating the Bible with the dignity and worth that it, that it does deserve when sometimes we take those shortcuts. Is it closer to the truth, Mark, uh, to put gender dysphoria into the spectrum of a mental health issue as opposed to a moral issue then? Yeah, I think, I think that's more helpful. I, what, I, what I do in my book is I make a distinction between three lenses for looking at this topic, and one is an integrity lens, one's a disability lens, and one's a diversity lens. And the, just briefly, the integrity lens is where I think most evangelicals are, and I think theologically it informs our decision-making and reasoning, and it should, and it essentially says that there is an essential um, maleness and femaleness that is a part of what it means to be human that is from creation and intended by God and so on and so forth. And, and so that, that's kind of where a lot of Christians begin. Um, the disability frameworks emphasizes more um, that this is, we live in a fallen world, this is a non-moral reality that we should address with compassion, like a disability. Uh, so when you talk about maybe a mental health concern, something along those lines, you know, we don't respond to other health issues or mental health issues as though having the issue falls into right and wrong moral category. We say, goodness, I hope I can respond to this person who's suffering with compassion. And then the third lens is what I call a diversity lens, and this is what the broader culture is rapidly embracing, which says this dysphoria, this lack of this lack of congruence, signals a type of person whose identity represents a kind of culture to be celebrated. And I think that's where the broader transgender movement um, and LGBT movement would sort of advance that understanding. And my main point in that is that three, you can talk with your neighbor, someone at work, and you'll talk right past one another because you're using a different point of reference in a conversation and you're not going to get anywhere. You uh, say, in, in speaking specifically to the church, you said in your book, you said, we would do well to offer a thoughtful response rather than a knee-jerk reaction. We can retain our convictions in a spirit of mutual respect with civility and compassion. Some would say that's a hard bill to, to fill, uh, and especially since it is such a new, new thing we're facing at the church. Can you uh, briefly, Mark, tell me uh, how, how we do that, how we have that from an evangelical perspective? Well, I think evangelicals are at their best when they can come into a conversation with another person out of a real relationship where you have a sustained relationship with someone in your family, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your workplace, and you begin with this place that you recognize, we don't see these same issues the same way. I look at this through a different lens. And what I argue for in my book is looking at the best of what each of those lenses I just mentioned has to offer and to incorporate something really thoughtful and and, uh, mature as a Christian community. So we're at our best when we speak out of relationships with confidence that God's going to provide for us in those relationships. He loves us. He loves this person when we do so with humility about what we know and what we don't know. And as you said, this is kind of a new thing in the sense that we haven't given it a lot of thought. It's, it's on uh, entertainment, it's on media, it's on reality shows. So let's not knee-jerk react to the way in which it's being covered right now. 
let's enter into the discussion with some humility about what we know and what we don't know, and let's be prepared to listen to somebody who's navigating that terrain with a heart of compassion. That's where I would begin. Dr. Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. Uh, today's show, by the way, will be posted on our Facebook page tomorrow, and the podcast is always in the iTunes library. When I come back, I end this hour asking Mark about a phrase I just love out of his book. He says, when it comes to transgenders, most are not meaning to participate in a culture war. They are casualties of that culture war. I ask him about that in the sitting room next on News Radio 610 WTVN. My pride, my ego, my needs, and my selfish ways caused a good, strong woman like you to walk out my life. Welcome back to the sitting room. Now I never, never get to clean up the mess I made. I'm Kathy Cairo. And that haunts me every time I close my eyes. And I uh, am just fascinated by this topic, gender dysphoria, perhaps because I am a fan of inclusion. I am a fan of recognizing that the God that I serve, I believe, is far more inclusive than sometimes the church allows him to be. And I don't believe that it is God's intention that anyone be outside his circle, outside his His love. And as Christians, sometimes we are just not good at that. We are not good at inclusion. Uh, before I move on to the topic real quickly, next week in the sitting room, I have wanted to interview this young man for years and years, and I finally found him. His name is Jay Baker. He is now the adult son of Jim and Tammy Baker. Remember the PTL years? Do you remember him as that young 11-year-old cowering next to his dad as his mom and dad were being humiliated in the mid-1980s and saw their PTL empire crumble? Well, what happens when you have been raised in the evangelical spotlight and then the evangelicals turn against you, especially as an 11-year-old. Well, it was a hard road for Jay Baker, but he is back and he is in the sitting room with me next week to talk about that life and where he is today in his love for God and more particularly the church. Uh, Back with me right now as we finish this hour, talking to Dr. Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. That's the book he wrote. Welcome back for a few more minutes, Mark. Um, real quickly, I want to ask you, because I want to get to the church's response to gender dysphoria, and I want to make it very practical. You know, the homosexuals, the gay community can actually walk into our church and sit on the pew, and, and we may not even know that they are there. And so in that sense, they can participate in our uh, church services. But you could not take a Caitlyn Jenner and bring them into the church and set them on a pew and, and not post an opinion about it. From a very practical standpoint, what what should our response be as the church? What should we be doing? And I will go ahead and include, even though they are two separate issues, but go ahead and include culturally uh, the gay, lesbian, uh, transgender, and bisexual as they are uh, coming into our church and coming more in the full fr- uh, forefront culturally. What should our um, response and posture be? Well, I think the, the place to begin is uh, to keep in mind that your overall reference point for everybody in the Church is to help further their relationship with Christ, and if they don't have a relationship with Christ, to introduce them to that possibility. And the only way that somebody even considers it a possibility 
is if they are around, you know, Christians who love them the way the Father loves them. In other words, you know, why would anybody uh, believe that there's a good and loving Father in Heaven who loves this person? And it's how the Christian community responds to that person. So I think you begin with a place of, you know, God loves this person, cares deeply for this person. Also, this person has been navigating this terrain for many, many years. You're right that most male-to-female people who present at church will be more identifiable, whereas it's easier to present, I think, for female, um, I'm sorry, for, yeah, for female-to-male, you might not notice whether that person is transgender. So there probably are people within our churches, although it's a rare phenomenon, who are navigating this terrain. Um, and I think you begin with a place of relationship and love, and you know, then you think to yourself, what's the best way for a person to be shepherded in this life as they try to grow in their relationship with Christ? Uh, I would think about hospitality for the Church. I'm, I, I do encourage churches to consider having something like a family restroom where someone can use the restroom and not make that a point that's symbolic and of great difficulty for that person to even come to the Church. You know, things like that would be small gestures that would mean a lot to people who are trying to figure this stuff out in their lives. You use the term convicted civil uh, uh, civility in your book. Tell me what that means. Yeah, convicted civility I totally stole from Richard Mao, who was the former president of Fuller Theological Seminary, um, and I think he stole it from Martin Marty, so everybody's kind of <laughs> taking it there. But it's, the idea is that um, there are plenty of Christians who are strong on convictions, but you really wouldn't want them to represent you to the broader culture because they're just not very nice people to interact with. <laughs> and then you have other Christians who are so strong on civility, you have no idea what they believe in. And so what Mao is recommending, what I recommend, is that we need Christians who are strong both in convictions and in civility. And the only thing I would add to that is I would, I would season that with compassion. Hmm. Dr. Mark Yarhouse has been on the phone with me this hour. Mark, thank you so much. You, you are a wealth of information, and I just so appreciate you taking time on a Sunday afternoon to be in the sitting room with me. Oh, it has been my pleasure, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Again, his book is Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. The emails I have gotten this week from my uh, listeners uh, by way of Facebook and by emails uh, that I get off the website tell me that there is a lot of ignorance out there as far as beliefs and how we look at these, uh, gen- these gender issues through an evangelical lens. And I confess, until I read this book, I shared a lot of the ignorance. So that's not a condemning statement. That's just a factual statement. And I recommend that if you're going to have a public opinion or if you're going to share that public opinion, that you do so with respect to having looked into the issue. And Dr. Yarhouse's book is a good way to start that. As we wrap up the hour, my thanks to American Eagle Mortgage. They are my featured sponsor in the sitting room. And in the second hour, Margaret Philbrook is coming up next, and she tells me that it her brother, Charlie, loved him, uh, grew up with him, went to Billy Graham crusade and got saved with him. And he came around to tell her that he has always felt like a woman and he is trans- transitioning to a woman. How do you deal with that? Well, she tells us about it on the other side of the news. Stay with me. Also, Jay Baker in the sitting room with me next week, son of Jim and Tammy Baker. Wow, does that young man have a story to tell? And he'll be with me in the sitting room next week. I'm Kathy Cairo. Stick with me. Be right back after the news. Here's your host, Kathy Cairo. 
Welcome back into the sitting room. I'm Kathy Cairo. Uh, Her name is uh, Margaret Philbrick. She's an author. She's a poet. She's a gardener. She's all those wonderful things. But even she had difficulty finding words and putting words to what she felt when her brother Charles, at age 46, sat her down at the dinner table and said, I have something to tell you. You aren't losing a brother, you're gaining a sister. And that's the way Charlie told Margaret that after 46 years of being her brother, he was transitioning in every way to become her sister. Please welcome to the sitting room to tell her story, Margaret Philbrick. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us about that conversation with your brother, Charlie. He was 46. He'd always been your brother, your beloved brother. And uh, you, he had an announcement to make. Tell me what your what he said and what your response to it was. Sure. Um, I think when anyone comes out, obviously, it's a very personal thing that they're doing. And the first thing is, I think, for them to do it in a way that, honors their situation as well as the person that they love they're talking to. And for my brother, that meant that it was for him to read me a letter that he wrote to his employer to explain his situation and asking them for grace in keeping him as an employee and honoring his decision. And because he had spent so much time composing that, he really thought that would be the best way to tell me. And he was really nervous when he told me. The paper was shaking. He was in tears by the end of the letter, which actually made it easier for me um, because I knew then that, you know, he's telling me something from the heart that is a really big deal. Um, And so I was grateful. It may not have been the most personal way to tell me, but actually it was the most professional way. And um, in the end, after the letter was read, then we had a great conversation. And my first question was, boy, when did this start? You know, I, I, I was blindsided. I had no idea that this would be going on. So then that really that letter was a launching pad for the two of us to have a more personal, intimate conversation on the details. Now, now the world now knows, and, and many of our listeners here in the sitting room know your brother because your brother has uh, taken on a reality TV show, Becoming Us, in which he does transition from Charlie to Carly. And this reality TV show uh, talks about the impact on his teenage son, who is your nephew. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, but at this point of the announcement, it was still a private thing. But you've told me, uh, Margaret, that while it was a stunning revelation, you now look back and saw signs of this. You knew that that perhaps you thought perhaps your brother was gay uh, because of some things. Were, were there any signals that this is the way your brother was going? No, and you know, I would have to say. You know, my brother has always been a person, he's very artistic, Um, a lot of people do know him now from the show, which I think is fun, kind of, he has a really lively, creative personality, and so when we were together for my birthday celebration, I noticed for the first time, and that was that summer, that was in July, and he told me all this letter, you read this letter in August, I noticed in July that he was wearing makeup. And I didn't think that much about it. I just thought, okay, he's trying something new. He's try he does and tries a lot of new things. So I, I didn't think it was that different. Um, and then prior to that, he had shaved his legs and shaved all his chest hair, and that was a couple years before. 
And I remember thinking, okay, mm, that's a little different too, but I asked him, why are you doing that? And he said the same thing he said when I noticed the makeup. I feel so much better about myself if I am shaving this off. And I thought, okay. I, I, I just, you know, for me, it's like, well, then maybe he is gay, but I don't think so because he's married to Susie and he loves his son. And so I don't really think so. And he didn't seem gay. And so I just thought, no, that's not it. And, you know, we went on being friends and, you know, do, doing dinners and being family. And it would seem like, okay. So now he's added a little bit of base makeup to an equation that was, tending to be more feminine, but I didn't really think, honestly, it would be that he was going the route of becoming transgender. And, you know, at that time, he wasn't all the way down the road to surgery at all. He was just thinking of, you know, doing more enhancements and augmentations that were more feminine um, without really going the whole way at that point. Did you even understand, Margaret, and I have on the phone with me Margaret Philbrick. She is uh, herself an author. She's a poet and a gardener. You can find her at margaretphilbrick.com. Uh, and by the way, I'll put a link to Margaret's website on uh, our Facebook page. You, uh, I always get requests afterwards, people who want to find our guest, and I'll do so with Margaret. But Margaret, were you like a lot of us? Did you really not even know, could you have even put a a definition to gender dysphoria to know that that was what your brother was experiencing? No, honestly, until I read Mark's article um, in Christianity Today, I didn't have all the facts um, about gender dysphoria. I really only knew um, the term trans. And for me, that just was either a cross-dresser or someone who really wanted to change their identity, in, and they could do it in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, and, and that, honestly, not until I read that article and started reading a couple other things did I learn more about what my brother was going through. And that was very helpful because, you know, I'm, I, I realized I'm dealing with someone who has a lot of psychological pain um, with the way they are identifying and the way that they are made as they are made. And so, you know, that was just, I'm so grateful that those resources are out there now because at the time he was sitting me down at the table, I thought he was going to tell me all he was going to be doing was just dressing like a woman occasionally um, and yet also being a dad to his son as well. And so we were in a little bit of a gray area at that point, um, and I just wasn't sure really what that meant. Hmm. Margaret Philbrick is on the phone with me, and we are talking about her brother, Charlie, who has transitioned to a woman, Carly. Many of you have watched this happen uh, by way of reality TV on uh, the Family Channel, uh, 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 ABC Family Channel or the series Becoming Us. I am particularly interested in Margaret's story because she tells me that she, she and Carly both were Christians. They both uh, actually got saved at a Billy Graham crusade as children. So what do you do spiritually? It's easy to stand judgment looking at a TV screen, but when you are looking across the kitchen table at your brother that you love deeply and you know has made a profession of faith in Christ and a love for God, what do you do when that brother says, I'm becoming your sister? That's coming up in the sitting room. Stay with me in the sitting room. So grateful to have you as my guest, Margaret, and as my listeners there on radio uh, News Radio 610 WTVN. Well, I know the feeling. 
cutting yourself with the jagged edge I'm telling you that it's never that Welcome back into the sitting room. Thank you to American Eagle Mortgage Company. Rachel May can be found at aemc.cc slash Rachel May. They are featured uh, sponsors of the sitting room and great at what they do. Finding you a mortgage or refinancing uh, that home. Today's live program will be available by podcast on my Facebook page tomorrow. That is facebook.com slash sitting room radio. And uh, also you can always communicate uh, with me through that Facebook page or at Kathy at SittingRoomRadio.com, and that's Kathy with a K. Next week in the Sitting Room, I have wanted to talk to this guy for years, really, literally for years. Jay Baker is the son of Jim and Tammy Baker. Uh, Those of you who are my age remember the horrific uh, 1980s for evangelical media uh, television, Jim and Tammy Baker, the the fall of their impressive empire there at PTL. And as the empire fell, the innocent bystander in all of this was there at the time, 11-year-old son Jay, uh, for many years, went and rebelled against the church, had a, a struggle with alcoholism. Where is he today? Well, I'll tell you where he'll be next Sunday, and that's right here in the sitting room talking with me. And I uh, loved, I would love to hear what he has to say. My guest this hour in the sitting room is Margaret Philbrick. Margaret is the sister of a Charlie, now Carly, uh, who is the subject of the ABC Family reality series, Becoming Us. He has transitioned from a man to a woman. And wow, what an announcement that is over the dinner table to be told that your brother wants to become your sister or has become your sister. And in addition to that, this was a family where both Margaret and Carly had expressed some faith in Jesus Christ. Where's God in the midst of it? Back to finish and uh, continue her story is Margaret Philbrick. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Kathy. Let me bring faith into this. You and your brother both had made at some level a profession of faith in Christ, and you had do had a, a belief in God. So from a very personal uh, angle, you have to make a decision. What, what, do, what do I do with this? What do I do with my brother, now sister, uh, in the light of the gospel and my faith in Jesus Christ? How did you handle that? Mm, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, first thing that's so important in these situations is to honor the other person as best you can by listening. Um, there's probably so much more to what they're telling you and what uh, my brother was telling me than in you know one conversation is even going to be able to be spoken. And so I really felt like as much as I could ask questions and try to understand what was going on and listen well, that was the first step. And then reaffirming our relationship. Uh, You know, my brother's first comment to me after he read the letter, when I responded by listening and saying, you know, our relationship is about you and I. It's not about our sexuality. It's not about, you know, it's not founded on, you know, me being heterosexual and you being transgender. That's not what we have going on. It's about how much we love each other because of how fearfully and wonderfully we are made and how we've lived that life out together. So you really have to reaffirm the good in the relationship that you have and really help that person know and help yourself know that that's going to continue going forward Um, so that they know no matter what happens, you love them. Um, No matter what happens with Carly, I love Carly. And, you know, although that is hard for me to say Carly, um, for where, you know, Carly is right now, that's very important 
that um, that name be used. And so I'm in the process of transitioning myself to being able to love Carly by using that name. Um, that, of course, does not mean that I think Carly is now a woman. I mean, a really important thing in this whole conversation is that um, it's very critical that Carly understands Carly is never going to have babies. Carly does not have the equipment, you know, in the design to be actually fully a woman in that way. And I really appreciated um, Carly's girlfriend saying in when she was brought into the dialogue, hey, Carly, you do know you're never going to be a woman like me. You know that, right? Because if you can't accept that, then you're bordering on delusional. And so that's something that um, my brother and, you know, now sister Carly is very clear on. I may um, identify as transgender, but I'm not a woman like my sister. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, but that's, that's something people have to get Mm to. I mean, and and that's a conversation that didn't happen right away. That, that was a whole year later as, you know, my brother went through all the steps and surgery and recovery and then the heart attack, as they showed in the TV show, which happened, and, and then recovery from that. And, you know, we were sitting around on a table, um, you know, really a year later when Sarah, um, his girlfriend, was the one who was saying, you know, you do have to accept this, but no matter what you do, you're not a woman like Margaret and I. And at that point, Carly was saying, that's right. No, I, I accept that. So that's a big piece, and I don't think people really talk about that. It's not, you know, there's so much that's misunderstood on this, and I think that's a part that people tend to miss. And Margaret, one of the things, and you and I have had an uh, off-air conversation, which I so appreciated, because um, uh, Mark Yarhouse in the previous hour talked about the need for convicted civility or convicted compassion, meaning you don't abandon your convictions in pursuit of compassion, nor do you uh, abandon compassion because of your convictions and I cannot imagine a harder line to walk when it when it is your brother but you have said to him look I love you but I still have convictions in this area is there a line for you is there a line you simply cannot cross spiritually while still loving your brother oh absolutely yeah there is and we've talked about that we've already talked about that um, the conversation came up where you know he's saying um, Carly's saying hey, um, if I marry Sarah, are you going to be coming to the wedding? And, you know, of course I can come to the wedding if it's a civil, you know, service. Um, that would be fine. But because of my faith and, and regard for marriage as a sacrament, um, as, you know, male and female in the way God and Christ has defined it, I, you know, it's, I, I had to make it clear early on that, I could not be attending a church wedding um, if you were really going to do it in a church as a sacramental event. And so that's a really interesting conversation itself, because then that leads you to the, the dialogue about what is a sacrament. And I really don't think that, I, I really think that where Carly is, and I think I expressed this in the article, Carly's trying to meet me as well as me trying to meet Carly. I mean, Carly said, hey, for my family, because this is hard for you, why don't you just call me what you've always called me, which is my nickname, Choby. And so in the conversation about marriage, Carly's saying, hey, you know, we will find a way, if it comes to that, to make this work for you so you can be there. Hmm. So it's not everyone just laying the stake in the ground and saying, it's my way or forget it. And then when that happens, it doesn't work well. 
um, you know, it's, it's how can I be there for you in a way that honors you and honors my convictions as well as honoring Carly and honoring what Carly is today. And that's got to be worked out and, and talked through and, and prayed through. And it's not going to be an immediate solution, as we see, you know, in our country, basically in an uproar about this on a grander, more macro scale. Um, it's, it's one person at a time really figuring out a way to love and honor the other person in a way that allows each to hold true to their convictions. Mm-hmm. Margaret Philbrick is on the phone with me, and she is talking about what a very private story of a very public event, and that is her brother Charlie becoming Carly. And if you've seen the reality television show Becoming Us, you've watched it uh, from your living room. Well, Margaret's talking about behind the scenes dealing with her brother very, very uh, privately. You can find Margaret at margaretphilbrick.com, and that's P-H-I-L brick, as in red brick. MargaretPhilbrick.com. She is an author and a poet and has a book out that we'll talk about right after this break. But when we come back in the sitting room, I want to ask Margaret about that reality television show. How real is the reality? And in light of what's going on in her brother, uh, now a sister's life, is it a good thing? I ask her. I'm next in the sitting room. sitting room on a Sunday afternoon. A quick few minutes before we wrap up today's show. And in the sitting room with me for these last few minutes is Margaret Philbrick. Uh, Fascinating conversation. She is a gardener, a teacher, an author, and she's written a novel called uh, A Minor, a novel of love, music, and memory published by Kohler Books. You can find Margaret Philbrick at margaretphilbrick.com or just go to my Facebook page. I'll put a link there so you can connect directly to her and continue this conversation. We're having about her brother, Charlie, who has become Carly, and he's done it in a very public way on ABC Family Series uh, Becoming Us. Many of you have watched it happen. Welcome back into the sitting room, Margaret Philbrick. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Kathy. Thank you. Let's talk about that reality show. I was a little bit surprised when we talked off air and you said, you know what? It's turned out to be a good thing. Uh, why is that? Why, why do you think that uh, putting this out there and having this transition happen in almost real time before America has been a good thing? Because the idea was Ben's, and that would be my um, brother's son. My nephew, he came up with the idea because he was in so much pain and he knew other kids were or would be going through this. And so he bounced this idea around and said, you know, I want to create something um, that will really show a real-life picture of what's going on. Um, When you're a kid who, you know, basically loses their dad to becoming a second mom, what is that like, and how? what does a kid do? Where, who, where do they go? Well, how, how do they talk about it? Um, and so it was, I was really honestly excited for my nephew that it happened because I saw um, firsthand just how hard the transition was um, and continues to be for Ben. And so because Ben had a vision to help other kids 
um, I was just excited that that vision would be put into real time, uh, really mostly for Ben. And, um, you know, it was, I think, as far as is it reality, it, it really is pretty close. I mean, you're not filming things in the moment. Um, you know, my brother had had the surgery, and then they filmed, you know, the sort of the after um, conversations that had happened, um, like when they learned that Sutton's future father-in-law had leukemia. That had already happened, but it wasn't that much before. I mean, we're talking about, like, days later, and they were filming it. So the emotions were raw and quite real, more than I would have thought. I thought reality TV was highly staged and... You know, we all knew long ago, and now we're just reenacting. But in this case, it was pretty close to real. Well, and Margaret, I've watched. Um, uh, good. I was going to tell you, I've watched a few episodes of it, and I will tell you where I am somewhat surprised, and I think pleasantly so, is they do not sugarcoat it. I mean, there's some ugly moments no. on there. There's difficult moments, and and you must know from the inside that those difficult moments are very real. Yes, and that I'm very grateful for. I. Um, I was asked to be on the show, and I didn't. I declined because my perspective was: there's just no way in the world they're going to show this how they how it really is. And I will say, at the end of the day, it was more real than I had thought it would be. So I was grateful for that. I mean, Ben's pain was very real to the viewer. Um, you know, when you're standing on the top of a building screaming because you don't know what else to do. Um, you know, they had the courage to show the the pain that Ben has been in. And, you know, the trouble with my, Carly's ex-wife Susie and all that dynamic and how hard that really is to work through. Um, so I was also, I agree with you, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect except that I thought it would be Hollywood and it would be just a complete sugar coat, and it wasn't. So I was very thankful. Margaret, thank you for joining me in the sitting room today. I just appreciate you, you telling your story. And uh, and we'll follow it. We'll follow it uh, in the TV show. And I I'll welcome my guest to find you online. Thank you for being my guest today. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Margaret Philbrick in the sitting room. You can find her at margaretphilbrick.com. As I said, before all of this happened with Carly, she was a noted author and teacher and uh, writer of a novel called A Minor, a novel of love, music, and memory. And you can find her. I'd love, love to have some of you converse with her about this situation with her brother, Carly. It is fascinating. I'm Kathy Cairo in the sitting room. See you next week when we talk with Jay Baker. In the sitting room right here on News Radio 610 WTVN. Thank you for joining us in the sitting room with Kathy Cairo. For information about anything heard on today's program, visit us online at sittingroomradio.com.